This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, if God is real, where is he? And today we're asking this question to David Robertson. David works with Third Space, an initiative of City Bible Forum to help Australians ask the bigger questions. He was previously the minister of St Peter's Free Church in Dundee, Scotland. He's the author of numerous books, including The Dawkins Letters and Magnificent Obsession. And he blogs at the We Flee, and he regularly debates and engages atheists around the world. And he joins me now. Please welcome David Robertson. Now, David, you regularly engage people on Twitter and blogs. Uh, You've been described as stupid, a fruitcake, a flea, a liar, a dishonest clown, a thug, an attention seeker, a pompous old fart. (laughs) You regularly get insults online. So what's the best insult that you've ever received? Well, I was writing a book called The Dawkins Letters, and um, my sister phoned me up. My sister at the time wasn't a Christian, and she was crying with laughter. And uh, basically, something I'd written had been placed on the Dawkins website, and there were a lot of comments. And she said, please, 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 if you ever write a book, put this on the front cover. It will sell like hotcakes, because this describes you to a T. She said, I'm getting a T-shirt with this made. It was one of the comments. And because this is a family show, I will put beeps at appropriate (laughs) points, okay? Beep. David Robertson is a self-righteous, narrow-minded, up-his-own-beep, thick-as-pig beep, moronic retard. Watch out, David. The Sky Fairy is late for his second coming and will be angry with you. Why is anyone debating with this moron? And I love the fact they misspelled debating. Um, <laughs> he, he doesn't know how to. He has the intellectual capacity of roadkill. I just thought, what a great insult. <laughs> just, so that's your best insult. That's my insult. favorite. So, so yeah. is that they're the type of responses you get online? Yeah, I used to get a lot. Um, I, I still do. Actually, today, for some bizarre reason, I, I went on this... I think someone pointed me to it, atheist experience or whatever, and I couldn't believe it because they were basically saying that Christians were Nazis and stuff, and I just, I, I intervened, and I wish I hadn't because all the <laughs> way down my phone's pinging, bing, 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 and um, shall we say that the insults are not quite as mild as the ones you read out. Right, okay, so, so is, it as, is it pointless then engaging online? When you engage online, one of the reasons you do so is because of the people who are reading the engagement. It's certainly pointless trying to change someone's mind, for some reason, online, people get very angry much, much quicker. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think that's worth it. Well, thanks very much for coming to join us today, David, as we explore this big question. Uh, and to kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking David Robertson about where God is, the search for God. So, David, I thought I'd test you on how much you know about famous searches. Okay. There's two questions, both at multiple choice. Question one. In 1594, the famed English explorer Sir Walter Raleigh left England on an expedition in search of what? Was it A, the lost city of Atlantis, B, El Dorado, the lost city of gold, C, to Scotland, to search for the Loch Ness Monster, or T, to the Antipodes in search of the perfect burger? So where was Sir Walter Raleigh going in search of? Uh, El Dorado. El Dorado. That was B. The right. It is correct. Yes. <laughs> he went on. Actually, went on. Oh, why not? Yeah, sure. He actually went on two trips in search of El Dorado, both ending him not finding it. So, David, have you ever gone in search of the Loch Ness monster? No. And <laughs> um, I often use the phrase. I used to live very near Loch Ness, um, and it's it's very deep. 
So it's possible that there is something down there. Apparently it's a giant eel or something. Something like that. But actually it's a giant tourist trap. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, question two. Several years ago, a woman on a bus tour was reported missing by her bus driver at Iceland's Aljau Canyon. A search commenced for the missing woman and about 50 people joined in. At 3am, the search was called off. Why? Was it A, it started snowing and it became dangerous? Was it B, they didn't like her and couldn't be bothered looking anymore? Was it C, the pub was about to close and the search party needed a nightcap? Or D, it became clear that the missing woman was in fact accounted for and searching for herself? I would go with D. D, searching for herself? Yes. Uh, and that's the correct answer. Yeah. It was, apparently... <laughs> apparently... Apparently the woman had changed clothes and didn't recognise the description of herself. So, David, you don't need to search out the answers anymore for you pass. You've got two of our two smaller questions right. Big round of applause. <laughs> so, David, we searched for lots of things. Missing people, the Loch Ness Monster, lost cities. But what about the search for God? It's a search that seems to have captivated humans throughout history. Yeah, um... It's very interesting because I am a historian. That's my degree and my training and what I'm interested in. And one of the evidences I use for God is very simply this, that there has never been a human society in which people did not seek to reach upwards. Mm. And it's why we do that. Now, if you're Richard Dawkins, you argue it's an evolutionary throwback. Um, I think it's a longing, like C.S. Lewis says, for something that's real. So we have a desire for sex because it's real. We have a desire for food because it's real. And we have a desire for God because he's real. Yeah, but some would argue that, that this, like this, you know, this woman's quest is like the search for God. You know, we're looking for something that doesn't really exist, only kind of to find that it's within us. I mean, is that a plausible explanation? Yes, human beings very often create God in their own image, but that never works. It never satisfies. Why would we want to do that in the first place anyway? So for me, that's a very inadequate explanation of that hunger and desire yes theoretically you could say the hunger and desire is a false one yeah but i i think it's the way we're wired and why are we wired that way that that for me is the deeper question yeah that's a deep, the bigger question perhaps yeah so that's why you think it's longing or this desire has persisted uh, across cultures across generations yeah uh, am i allowed to quote the bible <laughs> sure yeah, yeah okay <laughs> um ecclesiastes 3 you know it's the, that's the one that well we would often read it at funerals there's a time for weeping a time for more, uh, laughing and so on. But at the end of that section, it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what he has done from beginning to end. What a burden God has laid on men. That sense of the beautiful, of the transcendent, is a reflection of the fact that we're made in the image of God. We have God's law written on our hearts, and we have a longing for God. Mm. Uh, and I, it's, it's what people call the God-shaped hole. Yeah. But couldn't that God-shaped hole be accounted for kind of us wanting it to be true? So, for example, jo- Jose Oliver, a lecturer at the Institute of the Archaeology at University of College London, he says that the legend of El Dorado endures because we want it to be true. So is that, could that be the case for God, that it endures just because we want it to be true? This hole is something that we just want to be want to, to fill? Well, uh, let me relate from personal experience. I, I, when I was 13, 14 years old, I absolutely did not want Christianity to be true. I did not want there to be a God. I wanted to be an atheist because A, it'd be a lot easier life. B, when I died, it would be over and done with. And that, you know, I didn't have to worry about an afterlife. And so that, it, was, that was your real experience? That's yes, something that, you that was want- my real experience. So I, you know, it was the opposite. I didn't want it to be true. 
And it's like Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, who basically said, I don't believe because I don't want it to be true. And I, and I think you can reverse that argument. But for me, the reason I couldn't become an atheist was just intellectually, it was so vacuous. It just didn't make any sense. So for me, I think the bigger thing here is that most people don't want it to be true. I mean, there are some who do want a version of God to be true, where God is like Santa Claus and, you know, you pray, you pass all your exams, you, you, you marry a beautiful partner, you know, you pray and the bingo numbers or the, the lottery you, you numbers the lottery. are revealed to you, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. That God doesn't exist. And you might want that to be true, but I mean, I might want to be Brad Pitt. I might want Australia to win the Rugby World Cup. These things are not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> just, 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 just because I want them doesn't mean they're going to, you know. I mean, I, I, speaking of the Rugby World Cup, I mean, Scotland are great because you know that they're going to specialise in glorious failure. We, we do a <laughs> fantastic game against Japan. Things that are predictable in the yeah, world. And yeah. we still lose. So, but hand, so maybe from your own personal experience, yeah. what was it that convinced you that the thing you're looking for is, is really there? Well, there, there, there are several things that, that came, come to mind for me. Um, one is, I think we have to be incredibly careful of being arrogant. If we start saying the only things that exist are the things which I can see or I perceive or I understand, then that's quantum physics out of the way. To be honest, that's electricity out of the way. That's a lot of things. You know, we have to realize there's little that we can understand. And for me, I looked at the whole picture. And for me, the big issues were, why, why is there goodness and evil? Why do we think mm. in moral terms? Why do I have this sense of longing? Why can I not get around this sense of the eternal? For, for me, I tried to imagine not existing, and I couldn't do it, which is impossible. For me, I just thought, no, there's something in me that's I mean, I grew up on a farm, and I never saw cows having prayer meetings or rabbits, right. you know. I mean, philosophical discussions. Yeah, well, rabbits don't go, uh, I just wonder what the meaning of life is and why wasn't I born a fox, you know. <laughs> um, uh, whereas humans do, all yeah. the time, we... we, we, we th you know, we think the existential, we're aware of the transcendent. And another big thing for me was beauty. And beauty blew my mind. So I grew up in the highlands of Scotland. And I mean, I grew up in above these cliffs, 200 foot high cliffs that I always say my mother mustn't have liked me very much because she sent me out to play on them. Um, <laughs> and when I was trying to be an atheist, I would look out over this sea area called the Murray Firth and I would see the dolphins. And I just got, no, no. It's too beautiful. It, this cannot be an accident. Mm. So there was a number of different things. Yeah. But you mentioned the good and evil, or the problem yeah. of suffering. I mean, because that's the question of the reality of God is often particularly acute when faced with suffering. Uh, it seems like a common scenario, particularly when you're engaging online, uh, perhaps, you know, presenting evidence for God, uh, you know, the search for God. It doesn't take long for someone, usually an atheist, to put a meme or a picture of a starving African child or something like that you know, and ask the question, you know, uh, like 17,000 kids die from starvation every day, where is God? So why is this connection between, you know, the, how, the connection yeah. between God and suffering? Well, the, the, the Psalm, Psalm 42 that we, we've got for today, the Psalmist feels that and Christians feel that. My answer to that is, is, is kind of threefold. Number one, I would just simply say to the atheist, remove God from the equation, you've still got suffering. Mm -hmm. So you have no answer, you have no solution. Number two, what I would say is this. I went around to collect a, a girl coming to our youth club when I was a minister in a Highland village. And I went to the door and this man came to the door and he, said, he swore at me and told me to go away. And I said, well, what have I done? He said, well, I didn't realize you believed in God. And I said, well, I'm a minister. It kind of goes with a job normally. And uh, he said, I hate God. And he said, I don't believe in God and I hate God. And that was the Loch Ness Monster thing. I said, well, 
I don't believe in the Loch Ness Monster and I don't hate it. It's a bit of a waste of emotion, hating something that you think doesn't exist. And he said, he called me another name about being a smart aleck. And I said, yeah, you're right, I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's not uh, just online you get the... You no, 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 I was, <laughs> no, no, this was the, reality. The no. It's, a, it's right. a natural gift and talent. <laughs> right. that, and um, he said, I said, well, why do you hate God? And he said, very, very simply, because he killed my wife. What happened to your wife? His wife died when she, she was 34, left him with a young girl. And some Christians rather stupidly had said to him, well, it's God's will. And so he understood that as saying, God went, zap, you're dead. So I talked to him a bit. I said they were wrong. And I said, what did your wife die of? Cancer. I said, okay, what you need to ask is, why is there a cancer in the world? And then what we need to do is ask, what has God done about it? What has God done about suffering? There is suffering in the world. And, you know, he and I met together for six weeks. And one, I turned up one day and he said, don't come back anymore. And I said, why not? He said, because you're making too much sense and I'd rather be bitter. And I feel that what Christianity does is I actually think that suffering and evil actually prove God rather than disprove God. So, How so? That's a, that's a controversial thing to say. Yeah, I mean, I studied uh, Weimar Germany and the rise of the Nazis and so on when I was at university. And I, I was so upset by the whole thing. I, I, wouldn't even, I only went to Auschwitz three years ago. Um, I, I wouldn't go because it was just so horrific for me. But as I studied that, I came to realize that there was something within human beings which allowed this evil to happen. And evil happens all over the world. And there's something, the heart of darkness, one of my favorite films is Apocalypse Now. And it just, it's about that heart of darkness within humanity. And I came to realize if there is evil, there's also good. Because Richard Dawkins will say, in the universe, there's no good and evil. Mm. Well, in that case, stop complaining about things being bad. Mm. Because mm. if there is no good or bad, why are you complaining about something that doesn't exist? Mm. So for me, Christianity provides the best explanation of evil and the best solution for it. Mm. And actually, I would say in terms of suffering, God is there in the suffering. Yeah. We have mentioned Psalm 42, and the question, where is God amidst suffering, is, is raised in this psalm. It engages this very question. Mm. So in verse 3, the psalmist writes, My tears have been my food day and night, mm -hmm. while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So, I mean, does this surprise you that this is in the Bible, though? That the Bible actually no. confronts this big question that, you know, that God's there, you know, or the existence of God amid suffering? No, it doesn't. And, you know, there's a book in the Bible called Job, and uh, I decided to preach on Job. Now, Job is 40 chapters that are basically death, death, and mega death. Good name for a band. Uh, <laughs> sure. yeah. and, and I thought, I, I'll do 10 sermons, we'll see how it goes. And actually, I ended up doing 40. I did one on each chapter, and non-Christians loved it. Why? Because it was dealing with all the questions that they were facing. All of us face suffering. Yeah. We can't escape it. And so, I, so there's a reality to there's this. There's a reality to it, and I think the Bible's realistic. The Bible doesn't offer you a fairy story. It doesn't say, oh, well, just believe in Jesus and everything will be fine. You know, I, I'm a Scottish Calvinist, so I used to have a poster up on my wall that said I was really depressed and down, and they said to me, uh, smile, cheer up, things could get worse. So I did smile, I did cheer up, and things did get worse. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the sense of realism there. But yeah. I mean, but, this, but surely this, this, this lament of the psalmist here, you know, he's crying, and he's saying, where is your God? But surely, if God's real, why doesn't he help him? Well, two things. Number one, he's not saying it. It's people mocking him, saying, where's your God? And number two, God does help. I mean, the... This is a story from a friend of mine from New Zealand. Farmer and his wife had two kids, and their two boys were killed in a barn fire. And they were Christians, and someone very, very cruelly said to them, where's your God now? Basically reciting this psalm. And the, the mother said, 
He's on the throne where he always was. If I didn't believe that, I'd go insane. And it's very interesting. Again, when I was a minister in this village, there was a couple who were militant atheists, and I, but I got on well with them. I quite liked them. They said they hated the church, but I was okay. Um, but their 18-month-old baby died a caught death. And I, they asked me, would I take the funeral? And you take one of these funerals that's a white coffin, you know, three feet, and you just, you, 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 it's just a nightmare. And I thought, oh my goodness, they, they really were against God before. They're going to hate him now. And his mum turned up at the morning service the next Sunday, and I said, why are you here? Sorry for asking you, but why are you here? And she said, David, if there's no God, none of this makes any sense. Mm. And I, that's my attitude, actually. If there's no God, none of this makes any sense. Mm. But I mean, sure, that's an existential response. But if it makes sense, that's true. But how do we know that it's even real? How do we know that God is really there? What I look for is evidence. So, and then that evidence builds into a cumulative effect. And I think that's the same with the world. I look at a world, I see a world that's got many beautiful things, but there's a great deal of suffering. I look at what God has done. I, I believe that there must be a creator. I think, how does evil get in the world? I think, what would God do about that? I look at Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it's Jesus who's the answer to me mm. for the problem of evil and suffering. Because well, you mentioned Jesus just now, but I mean, similar ideas are found in the New Testament where we learn about Jesus. Uh, because there's this Jesus who was claimed to be sort of Emmanuel God with us, uh, then actually died. Yeah. And on the cross, uh, he, in Matthew 27, it says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus cries out kind of as though he's been forsaken. It seems like God himself has deserted Jesus. So what do you make of, what do you make of that? He's quoting Psalm 22, and Psalm 22 more or less finishes, it is finished. And I think Jesus quoted the whole of Psalm 22 on the cross. Um, and I think at that point, Jesus is experiencing a sense of God not being near. At other times, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he sweated great drops of blood in agony, and the angels came and strengthened him. But on the cross, he wasn't strengthened. No. On the cross, he was experiencing the greatest gap. So what you mean by that is that he was absolutely forsaken, like God really was absent to him at that particular point. I think he felt that, but I, I, I would say that also at that time, God the Father, if, if it's possible for him to love Jesus more, it wouldn't have been any more than at, that, at the cross. So I think what was happening was Jesus was taking our sin upon him, and that meant having the loneliness, the isolation, you know, the eternal pain, if you like, in, in a moment of time. So there's no suffering. There's an old Scots teacher called Rabbi Duncan who said this, there's no pit so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still. And when I'm sitting with somebody who's just buried their child or just some people who've gone through the most horrendous suffering, and a lot of people do, it's great to know that because they can say to me, you don't know, you've not been through this. And that's true. But I can say I know someone who has, mm. and that's Christ. The suffering that Christ went through is the answer to the suffering of our world. Does that help, though? Yes, phenomenally. Um, it's very interesting. I, I wrote a book called ASK for 15 to 17-year-olds. I contacted uh, people in 21 different countries, every single continent, hundreds of questions I got from teenagers. Here's the interesting thing. The only ones who asked about suffering were Western kids. Every other continent, nobody asked about suffering. And people who in, were in countries where there was much more, at least external suffering, than would exist in Australia or the United Kingdom. So I, I found that fascinating. I find that suffering drives people to God rather than away. Now, there are some people who are driven away, but I think that's because they have a very limited notion of who God is. And they have a very 
dare I say it, Disney-esque view, mm. as I mentioned at the beginning, that God is going to do this, this, and this. And when they find out that God doesn't exist, they say, okay, I don't believe up. in him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Our question's come in from our text line, from our live audience. Um, but how is Christianity good? Does it matter if it explains suffering, if it makes no difference? Ah, but that's the point. Christianity doesn't just explain suffering. So it's not uh, just uh, what we call a theodicy, an, an explanation of, I understand why. I mean, Richard Dawkins can explain suffering. It's this, just get over it, it happens. Yeah. You know, you know suck That's an it explanation, up. but it's not Well, yeah, it's an explanation. I mean, it's just, there's, there's nothing. Because Christianity doesn't just give you an explanation, it gives you a solution. And that's phenomenal. So what's, what's the solution? Well, th the solution is, Romans 8, 28, God works all things for the good of those who love Jesus Christ. And I can go to anyone on their deathbed, I can, uh, I can talk to people, I can tell them about Jesus, and I do believe that there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and that God will renew the whole creation. And I think the answer to suffering is found in Jesus Christ. And I've seen that in so many ways. I've seen so many people suffer so deeply, and yet in the midst of that suffering, no tremendous joy. Mm. Well, amidst the psalmist's pain and despair and his taunts, uh, he sees something which is perhaps contradictory, and you've perhaps alluded to the idea already. In Psalm 42, verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. So he says the same thing in verse 11. So what's the psalmist getting at here? He seems to be talking about hope in God. So how can he hope in God when he's suffering? Well, and also the, the, the deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. I love that. I think here's an example of someone being overwhelmed by all the things that are happening. Hope doesn't mean, hey, I feel really joyful. Hope means, you know, this is really bad. But things must get better. They have to get better. Mm. Um, my hope, therefore, is in Jesus Christ. My hope is not in, you know, the government and, or whatever else people hope in. But how can you hope in something that you can't see or taste or touch or, or that something that seems to have almost abandoned him? So how can you do that? Well, okay. First of all, I dispute that you can't see because, you, you know, uh, I go into an art gallery and, I, I, I mean, I can't see... Um, Kandinsky or Chagall or Van Gogh, um, and yeah, I can see their paintings and see their works, and I can see what God has done in the creation, and taste and feel, oh, taste and see that God is good. It's funny, you know, the psalmist says that as well, and I, I think, why, why did evolution not just make us all so bland that we only ever, you know, just taste stuff that's disgusting? Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm here in, in Australia and your food's amazing, mm -hmm. uh, basically because you've imported it from other parts of the world. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have very good, very good burgers here. That's uh, right. All the, all the different cultures, you know, yeah. But you, I mean, you can actually taste, you can actually see, you can actually experience, you can feel things. I would say that. But also, you cannot limit your life to what you can taste, see and feel. Because what if you don't have a sense of taste? Does that mean... You know, food doesn't exist. What if you can't see? Does that mean you're blind, so the Mona Lisa doesn't exist? You know, and it's the same thing. I think most people's problem with the non-appearance of God is not with God or the evidence for God. It's with their perception. Mm. How then has hoping in God helped you in suffering? Well, I, I want to be careful about using the word hope because there's different ways of using it. I mean, I hope that at the end of this event that, that somebody's going to come up and give me $10,000. Okay, that's not probably a realistic hope, is it? Um, you know, I hope certain things that Scotland will win the World Cup one day, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, we use hope in that way and it just means wishful thinking. But Christian hope is it's a sure and certain hope. 
It's something on which you base your life. And for me, my hope is found in Jesus Christ, and therefore it means that whatever happens, though he slay me, says Job, yet I will trust him. That's a tremendous statement. Though he slay me, I will trust him. And people may say, that seems blind. It's not blind. It's very, very profound and mm. very deep. Mm. But how can God be good, though, if he slay you or if he, he treats you like this? I mean, if I could, well, well, if I could, if I could feed 17,000 children, I would do it. So why doesn't God do that? I, I would say the reason in, in, in all of that is it's because of the goodness of God that I do not allow my circumstances or what I may perceive to be the predominant factor. So because I believe that God is good and the giver of good, then I will look at some things and say, how is this possible? How can that happen? I may not have the answer. And often I will not have the answer. But I do trust. And what I've found in my life is over long periods of time, I've seen more and more the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Mm. Now, I saw someone on Twitter share something very similar to the situation of the psalmist in Psalm 42. They said... I'm in so much pain, hurting and depressed. I can't even sleep. My life is a very sad mess. Where is God when I need him the most? What would you tweet back? But what I'd want to do is point them away from the mess that's within their own lives to something that is beyond. I mean, it's very, very interesting that in the Second World War, the psychiatric units largely emptied in the United Kingdom. And a large part of that was people saw a greater thing that they could be part of. I think one of our problems is we are so self-obsessed that it's no wonder the world looks miserable because often we're miserable. And you know, and the things that we strive for, they never achieve. So I would want to meet them. I would want to listen to what they had to say. I'm going back to Job. Job's friends kept silent for seven days and just sat with him and wept. And then they made a big mistake. They opened their mouths. So I'm not going to go on Twitter and open my mouth and say, snap out of it, idiot, or it's not really that bad, or there are people worse off than you, or any of the other truisms that people come up with. I, I think it's more complex than that. So David, if God is real, where is he? Uh, here, there, and everywhere, as the Beatles said. <laughs> no, um, yeah, here. Uh, I, you know, I became a Christian because I couldn't, I couldn't become an atheist. So I, I stepped out one day at midnight on New Year's Eve in a town square in the highlands of Scotland. And I looked up at the moon and I remember praying, God, if you exist, you show me and I'll serve you the rest of my life. And I, I didn't get hit by lightning. Nothing happened. I went to church one Sunday morning and I was just sitting there. It wasn't the sermon. It was the waves beating against the church wall just from the sea. And I just sat there, and they were singing a psalm, and I remember going, you complete idiot. Of course God exists. Nothing makes sense if he doesn't exist. And after that, I saw God everywhere. It was like my eyes were opened. And I think, I would say, God is everywhere. I think God, human beings are made in God's image. I think that the creation reveals the glory of God. I think the stars do. I think the tiniest atom reveals the glory of God. But above all, God is in Christ. I, I, I look at Jesus and I see God. That's what Hebrews says, that in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The son is the exact representation of God's being. Get to know Jesus, you'll see where God is. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, if God is real, where is he? From Psalm 42.5. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, David Robertson. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.